This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, this morning we're looking at verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and Lord, as it is your truth, we pray for your help as we study it. Pray that you would open it to us. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to profit by our study of your word this morning. For We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone loves a winner. And, at least at this point in his ministry, Uh, As far as the world was concerned, Jesus was a winner. He had come seemingly out of nowhere. He was introduced to the world by his forerunner, the previous phenomenon, John the Baptist. And he, as Matthew describes it, uh, began immediately his public ministry in Galilee, in the northern area of that region. And Matthew gives us a summary, and then he proceeds in chapter 5 to give us three chapters in some detail of the teachings of Jesus and a sample of the the kinds of things that he said. And then, after that, uh, the crowds, verse 28, were astonished at his teaching. But it had only begun, because as we saw last time in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 8, Uh, As the great crowds followed him and witnessed what he did, he began to do miracles. He began to heal people. He healed the leper of that dread disease. He healed the servant of the centurion from his paralysis, even at a distance. He healed Peter's mother-in-law from her illness and her fever. And people began to uh, come to Jesus from all over the place to hear what he had to say to see the kinds of things he did, and for many of them to bring themselves or someone they cared about, someone they loved, in order to receive healing from his hand. It did not take long before Jesus was the, uh, the phenomenon, crowds coming to him from all over the place. Now, unlike 
Many who serve in his name today, Jesus was not interested in crowds for crowds' sake. In fact, Jesus often seemed to discourage those who would come to him. Uh, Jesus could easily have increased and built upon the, the crowds who came to him, and yet, probably in some ways to his closest disciples' astonishment, seemed to discourage those who would come. We think of the rich young ruler. And uh, Jesus set a very high standard for this man, and he went away. He just walked away, and Jesus just let him go. Someone who would have made a fine addition to the crowds that followed Jesus around, could have contributed great resources perhaps, and Jesus let him walk off. Well, we have something similar to that here in this passage before us. Uh, you'll notice that the, the, the crowds are mentioned several times. The end of chapter 7, verse 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Chapter 8, verse 1, great crowds followed him. And then the end, the end of last week's passage speaks of all of those who came. They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and so forth. And now we pick up in our text this morning with verse 18. When Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Other side here being the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus did not dislike the crowds as people. In fact, we read how Jesus looked on the crowds. He felt compassion for them, as we'll see uh, later in this gospel. Jesus cared very much about these people. But Jesus also recognized a couple of things. One, he himself needed to rest sometimes and to get away. Two, he also recognized that often what this crowd was after was not what he himself was about. And so we see as Jesus interacts here in three conversations, basically, uh, what Jesus was looking for in disciples. He teaches the crowds, he teaches through Scripture us some lessons about discipleship. Uh, Jesus wasn't merely looking to heap up numbers following him just to have people. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the uh, 19th century uh, bishop of Liverpool, England, uh, great, great uh, pastor and theologian. His works are in print. I highly recommend them. Uh, he made the statement that uh, no greater harm has been done to Christianity than the practice of accepting volunteers into Christ's army who are able to make a little profession and able to talk of a little experience. Uh, Jesus was looking more for more than mere lip service, as we see here, as he gives us these teachings on discipleship and, and what he requires in someone who is following him. So Jesus gives orders, presumably to his disciples, closest disciples, the twelve, to go over to the other side. But before he can get away, or as he appears to be about to depart the scene, uh, he describes, Matthew describes a couple of men who come up to him here and perhaps want to follow him. You know, wait, don't go away, we want to go with you. And so we look at the first man and learn the first lesson of discipleship, and that is this, that Jesus calls for sacrifice. In his disciples, or to put it another way, we need to count the cost of following Jesus. But in a word, think sacrifice. Verse 19, a scribe came up to him. Now, we think scribes, it's almost a phrase, right? The scribes and Pharisees, it's almost one word. A scribe, well, we typically think of the scribes as enemies of Jesus, and, and later certainly they do seem to be, uh, together with the Pharisees, opposed to Jesus. This man at least had some interest in Jesus. Although it's interesting that he refers to him as teacher 
And if you if you'll note carefully in Matthew, when when people refer to Jesus as teacher, it seems to imply some level of unbelief or at least inadequate belief or understanding who Jesus is. Although he uh, he probably meant it respectfully, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a pretty broad statement. He just makes this declaration of loyalty to Jesus, this desire to go with Jesus and to follow him. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, that is great. That, that, that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. People, listen, this is what I'm looking for. Someone who's got that kind of commitment. Someone who's willing to say, yeah, I'm with you. It doesn't matter where you go, I'm there. That's, of course, not what Jesus said. Verse 20, Jesus, which is interesting because the centurion, that's what he did say. He, he said, surely in all of Israel I've not found faith like this man has. Because the centurion demonstrated it. You know, this implicit confidence in Jesus. Well, Jesus must have detected something here, some element of insincerity, insincerity or perhaps a lack of understanding in this man's well-meaning but somewhat exaggerated statement. Jesus says in verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a strange thing to say. And it's almost as if Jesus is trying to dampen this man's enthusiasm. And perhaps he was. Or perhaps he was simply trying to test the reality of this man's enthusiasm, much as he did with the rich young ruler, when he said, fine, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and come follow me. What's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is basically saying here that if this man really wants to follow him everywhere he goes, it will not be a comfortable existence. Basically saying that his, his lifestyle will be even more austere than the foxes, who at least have their hole to crawl into, or the birds, who at least have their nests to lie down in. But he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what's Jesus saying? Is he saying he's, he's penniless? Well, he evidently did not have a lot of wealth or resources or things in this world. He did apparently have a home, at least a borrowed one in Capernaum, uh, a place to go to. But the fact is, he was on the move. His ministry was an itinerant ministry. He was constantly going, uh, and he makes that clear to this man. This is not a, an easy, comfortable existence that you are so quickly and easily declaring yourself ready for. You need to count the cost. You need to be aware of what it is you're signing up for. You know, later, uh, or in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 14, verse 25, Jesus fleshes this out. And what he says to those, again, great crowds who were coming after him. Uh, Jesus says in verse 27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is what Jesus is saying. You need to be aware of what it is you're saying, man. You need to think about what you're 
signing up for here, the kind of sacrifice, even suffering, that may be entailed. Jesus says the same thing to us. Uh, Jesus reminds us that to follow him entails a measure of sacrifice. At the very least, it involves denying ourselves the pleasures of our own sin that we otherwise might indulge ourselves in. Uh, It calls for a life of commitment to Christ, obedience to what he has to say. It calls for uh, sometimes denying ourselves for the sake of others, to serve others, to meet the needs of others. Uh, Following Jesus is not easy. It doesn't necessarily entail that we should all become penniless or homeless or that we should become itinerant people going here and there, although Jesus does call some to a life of being on the move, uh, not enjoying very frequently the comforts of home or a stable uh, location. Uh, But there is this cost to be considered. But we also need to be aware that we in the end, will gain far more than we sacrifice. I mentioned the rich young ruler earlier, and Jesus is teaching his disciples after he departed, and he says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed and said, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. but With God, all things are possible. And Peter's response is, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus answers, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So a sacrifice of whatever kind is merely a temporary arrangement. We will never be losers by Jesus. We will never come out in the end with less. There will be no regrets. And yet Jesus, talking to someone who wants to follow him, says you need to realize what that will mean for you. So the first lesson of discipleship is that there is a cost. There is a sacrifice entailed. The second lesson in discipleship that Jesus teaches we find in verses 21 and 22 Another disciple, another of these in this crowd that was following Jesus, at least provisionally, said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, at face value, we would assume his father's died. His father's awaiting burial. And that may be the case. Jesus is about to cross the sea. I want to go with you, but could you just wait till I bury my father? The only difficulty with that is if his father had in fact died, he probably would not be here conversing with Jesus. He probably would be with his family because typically a burial would occur as soon as possible after a death with any preparation of the body to take place. It just would not be very long. And uh, so that's a possibility, but it has that strike against it. The other possibility is that the man has in view either his father is sick or he's beginning to age. Death may not be that far off in the future. And he's saying, Lord, I want to follow you, but I have other, other things I need to attend to. I need to fulfill the law. I need to fulfill my obligations to my family and wait for my father's death. In fact, some have even argued that that expression, uh, to bury my father, had the implications of one's care of an aging parent together with caring for the body in the event of the death of a parent. Well, either way, the point is this man had some other priority that he saw as reason to delay following Jesus. I, I want to follow you, but I can't. There's something else I need to do first. 
Jesus gives this curious response. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. First thing, follow me. Jesus doesn't argue at first. He just says, follow me. You say you want to follow me? Follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? Well, probably Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead take care of the physically dead. He may be just being sarcastic and said, let the physical dead take care of the physical dead. But the point is, Jesus is speaking in something of a hyperbole. He's not saying this man should not show proper concern for his family. Any more than Jesus says, you should literally cut your right hand off if it causes you to sin, or pluck your right eye out if it causes you to sin. Jesus is challenging, challenging this man's putting another priority ahead of following Jesus. That's his point, the point that he makes when he says this, not that he thinks this man should not take care of his family. The point is not the father, the point is the man's heart and the fact that he is demonstrating other priorities ahead of Jesus. And so Jesus challenges that. And so for us, too, the same thing applies. It's very easy, uh, in fact, for, for unbelievers to say, well, I'll, I'll follow Jesus when, or I'll trust in Jesus when this happens or that. For you children, it may be easy to think, well, I'll be serious about following Jesus when I'm older, when I'm an adult. Jesus says to you, follow me. And certainly many adults have other priorities. I'll get serious about studying the scriptures. I'll get serious about tithing. I'll get serious about serving. I'll get serious about getting to know my brothers and sisters in Christ when I've accomplished this project or when I reach this point, when I've attained this goal. And Jesus says to you, follow me. You let the dead take care of the dead. You follow me. So priority. Devotion is the second lesson that Jesus teaches here. First of all, counting the cost, know what you're getting into. And we do people a great disservice if we present the gospel as, as the end of everyone's problems, when in fact, for some people, it may only be the beginning as they follow Jesus of great difficulty. But then Jesus also calls not only for counting the cost, but he also call, uh, calls us to devotion, to an allegiance to him, a commitment to him that immediately presses aside every other legitimate even, call or need or obligation of life to follow Jesus. And following him, then begin to take care of these other things. But Jesus is challenging the man and he's challenging us about those things that we're putting us in, in front of Jesus, saying, once I've cleared that deck off, then Jesus, I can follow you. Jesus says, follow me. And let those things take care of themselves later. Well, there's a third incident here that happens. This one's a little different. Because it involves Jesus' closest disciples, those of the twelve, uh, and they get into the boat and, in fact, are crossing over to the other side. And this storm arises there on the Sea of Galilee uh, so badly that they were in danger, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, uh, presumably because he was weary from his work with the, the multitudes who came to him. And so, verse 25, they go to him and say, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? What was it they were afraid of? Well, they obviously were afraid of the storm, afraid of losing their own lives. Maybe they were a little bit irritated that Jesus seemed to be sleeping calmly while they were trying to save the boat and were worried about this storm. It's also possible even at this stage, that they're beginning to see who Jesus is. 
beginning to understand a little bit who this man is and are afraid of losing Jesus. Maybe afraid for their own lives, but, but are concerned about what would happen if, if this man dies, if he drowns here on the Sea of Galilee, with all of this just beginning. So I think they were concerned, obviously, for their own lives, but I think they were also concerned about Jesus and what would happen to him. If that's the case, Jesus could sleep because, as he put in other places, my time has not yet come. And Jesus was not going to die before his time came. And now that's true of the disciples, too. You know, they were going to die on the day that the Lord had appointed for that death to take place. Uh, but certainly for Jesus, he knew his time hadn't come, and he knew he wasn't going to perish in this storm. And so he gets up, and after speaking to his disciples and rebuking them for their lack of faith, he then rebukes this storm. He speaks to the creation itself, his own creation. And there was immediately this calm. You know, the same divine voice that calmed the storm when Jonah went splash into the uh, sea and immediately the things settle down. Uh, the same voice speaks here and the storm calms down. You see Jesus' power over creation. And the men were astounded. They marveled. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? You know, now, Jesus had healed people. People were one thing. Who can control the wind? Who can control the sea? Well, God himself can. And the question is meant to linger in the mind. It's meant to make us think, who is this? Well, this is the Messiah. This is the God-man. This is the Son of Man, which Jesus used to describe himself earlier, by the way, the first time that name occurs in Matthew, which has certainly a human element. Remember in Ezekiel, when the Lord speaks to Ezekiel, he refers to him as Son of Man. In other words, a human, a mortal, mere human being. But in Daniel, where we read that one like a son of man came to the ancient of days, came before him, and the, and, and the ancient of days, God himself gives to him a kingdom. Son of man also has that divine implication, that messianic implication, although among the Jews it was not really known as a messianic title. In some ways it was a neutral title, which it was useful for Jesus to use to refer to himself. Well, this was the son of man. This was the Messiah. This was God in the flesh. That's who could calm the winds, and the sea. But the point here is faith. This requirement of discipleship, we have to trust Jesus, to trust that he is in control, to trust that we are safe when we are following him, when we are in his will, when we are seeking to serve him, to obey him, and to be with him. Uh, The difficulties may come, and it's easy to be afraid, but that's when we need to go to Jesus and trust in him. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Um, it's a convicting statement for any of us who have been in situations where we've been anxious or afraid. But we need to trust that Jesus is Lord. We need to do all we can, just as these disciples did, to manage to deal with the situation. But first, we go to Jesus and we say, Lord, we need help. I really am tempted to be afraid here, but I'm trusting in you. I believe that you are in control. I believe that, uh, as the psalmist says, my times are in your hands. And so Jesus, as the crowds come to him, we begin to center in on just a couple of people particularly who came to him, plus his experience with his disciples. And he begins, to t- he begins to teach us that Jesus isn't just looking to build up a great crowd, just isn't looking to build a massive following. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people who are willing to count the cost and follow him. He's looking for people who are willing to set aside other priorities of life And follow him. He's looking for people who are willing to trust him, even when the situation gets pretty scary. 
See, Jesus isn't just looking for a crowd. He's looking for a crowd of disciples. And so he calls you to follow him. Count the cost. Be devoted to him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we do want to follow our Lord Jesus. Even as those twelve followed him, Lord, even they had their moments of doubt, moments when they disappointed Jesus, no doubt. Father, we pray that even as we have failed so often as disciples, that you would forgive us. And yet we pray that you would give us grace, Lord, to follow Jesus, even when that does mean sacrifice, even that when and that does mean making him our absolute first priority, even when that does mean trusting him when things may make us uncomfortable or even afraid. Father, we thank you that it is your spirit who drew, who drew us to Christ to begin with, and it is your spirit who empowers us to be his disciples. And we pray that we would be faithful followers of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.